All right, I'm all excited. I'm excited this morning to be studying 1 Corinthians 16. So take a, take a look. Turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And as we continue uh, jumping into books in the middle of books, jumping to the end of books, we're studying 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 16. And uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, since I was preaching upstairs, I was like, okay, I really don't want to start something new on a, on a Sunday that I'm preaching also. And so I said, well, what's in 1 Corinthians 16? And I start looking at it, and I realize there's some really good, good things for us to learn. Um, when I say 1 Corinthians 13, what do you immediately think of? Love. It's the love chapter. Now, when I say, now I hope you get this one right. When I say 1 Corinthians 15, what do you think of? Oh, my goodness. When I say 1 Corinthians 15, what do you think of? Resurrection. Thank you. Thank you. I was just going to resign and go climb in a hole or something. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, when you think about 1 Corinthians 16, I want you, you know, what are you going to think on that? What do you say on that? Now, it's okay to have silence now. Okay? Because I'm like, you got to be kidding me. What is there? Some of you might know it starts off talking about giving. But here's what I want you to think about 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, I want you to think about abounding. Abounding. That's what I want you to think of. This is the abounding chapter. 13, the love chapter. 15, the resurrection chapter. 16, the abounding chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is one of the great verses of the Bible, I believe. Look at that and see. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil or your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's one of the great verses in the Bible. You ought to memorize that. And it was a great ending to 1 Corinthians 15. But it sort of left me hanging. Here you got this monster chapter on, on resurrection, and you have one verse of direct, really big application. I'm like, Okay, we looked at that last week. We, we tried to end that series with a lot of applicational ideas. But it kind of leaves me hanging thinking this. What does abounding in the work of the Lord look like? Sounds good, but what's it look like? What are the marks of someone who's abounding in the work of the Lord? Because if I'm supposed to abound, how do I know if I'm abounding? What are the characteristics? What areas of the Lord's work should we be abounding in? Did Paul just give the Corinthians this powerful challenge to conclude his teaching on the future bodily resurrection and then just drop it and leave it for them to figure out the application? That's a good question. And I would put forth to you the answer is no. He didn't just drop it. He moved right on into chapter 16 to talk about abounding, always abounding. Now, the reason we kind of think this way is because of the chapter divisions. You know, the whole time I was working through 1 Corinthians 15, I had it in my mind, okay, I just got to get to verse 58, and then we're done. And, and, and then along the way, I'm like, you dummy, there's another chapter in there. I mean, you know, this isn't the end of the letter, but it feels like it. It feels like the end of the letter. But the reality is, 1 Corinthians 16 is the abounding chapter. This chapter helps us see what it looks like to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I'm not just making this up to have something to say this morning. Over the next three weeks, we're going to see today what are the marks 
of someone who always abounds in the work of the Lord. And then in the next two weeks, we're going to look at 10 areas to always abound and never stagnate in the work of the Lord. And so I think you're going to be excited. So here's what today's lesson is meant to do. Today's lesson is meant to show you that chapter 16 connects to that last verse. I'm going to give you an overview and give you the marks of someone that's always abounding. We're going to dive into certain parts. I'll il- illustrate, I'll show you that really 1 Corinthians 15:58 is vitally, vitally connected to the rest of the letter. And so today I just want to start off with this question, which is a, a good question to be asking all the time, really. Are you abounding or stagnating in the work of the Lord? Are you abounding or stagnating in serving the Lord? How would you know? What are the marks of abounding? What are the marks of stagnating? How, ba- how Am I always abounding? Am I sometimes abounding? Am I beginning to stagnate? Or am I struggling in my service for the Lord? And, of course, the obvious question is, am I even serving the Lord? Am I active in ministry? And so, I want to give you this morning four marks of those who are always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then we'll break it down in the next two weeks. Very practical areas that we can abound in. So, let's look at these four marks and uh, see if you can... Uh, uh, relate to them. The, the four marks of those who are always abounding. The first mark is this. The mark of staying on mission. The mark of staying on mission in the work of the Lord. Stay on mission. And I see that in verse 58. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Two of the most important words in that verse are the work of the Lord and your toil or your labor in the Lord. The two key words to abounding, what you're abounding in, is the work of the Lord and your labor in the Lord. Okay? And these are two key words. Now, what turned me on to chapter 16 being connected to this is these two key words are repeated several times in chapter 16. And so... This is the first mark of always abounding. You can't abound in something that you're not involved in. Stay on mission in the work of the Lord. Now, as I said, the most obvious connection is these two words. Now, let me show you real quickly where they show up. Look at verse 10 of chapter 16. Both Paul and Timothy are doing the work of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Now, if if Timothy comes to you, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Why? For he is doing the Lord's work or the work of the Lord as I also am. So he says, hey, verse 58, always be abounding in the work of the Lord in your labor. And then he says, chapter 16, by the way, Timothy's doing the work of the Lord and so am I. But it's not just pastors and missionaries that are to stay on mission. Look down to verses 15 and 8 through 18. 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers, speaking to the Corinthians, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker. Same word, same Greek word. Every fellow worker and laborer. Same Greek word. Two different Greek words. 
Very similar, referring to working for the Lord. Rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Why? Because they're staying on mission in the work of the Lord. Just like Timothy and I are. Okay? So here's a couple principles to draw out. The first principle is this. Being on mission in the work of the Lord is not just for pastors and missionaries. Being on mission in the work of the Lord is not just for pastors and missionaries. And let me draw out two, two principles under that. First of all, all vocations can work for the Lord. Can I hear an amen? All vocations can work for the Lord. We see this in the household of Stephana, Stephanus. Yeah. Verses 15 through 18. Um, st- and, and hopefully you got that message clearly in our series on work. Okay, we did a whole series how every work is ministry. But notice, Stephanus was most likely a businessman who had a large household. It says he, his, his household that most likely, and, and a household in those days included your wife, your kids, even your adult grown kids and slaves, servants, and even fellow business associates. So this man is more than likely a wealthy. He has a large home, which included a a courtyard and plenty of places for people to stay. Paul does not say in verses 15 through 18, but it's very likely that Fortunatus and Achaicus are either his slaves or his freedmen. A freedman is simply a slave that had been set free and then who chose to continue to work for his master. Okay, so maybe he has set these men free and they're still uh, working with him, but they're definitely on mission with him. And they've probably been set free but continue to work with him. Both names were common among slaves or freedmen. So that's why I say this. He's probably taken a couple key men out of his household and they're on mission. So what's the point? All vocations can abound in doing the work of the Lord. Okay? Now, drop down to verse 19. We see another business couple. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And whenever you find Aquila and Priscilla in the Bible, and we'll talk more about this in the next couple weeks, they always open their home to have a church planted in it. They are like hosts of a small group, okay? And wherever they are, they were tent makers, just like Paul was bivocational. He was a tent maker. And so they would take their business, and they started out in Corinth, and then they're in Ephesus now with Paul, where Paul's writing from, and eventually they'll show up in Rome. Paul will write to the Romans, Greet Aquila and Priscilla. So these people are on their move. Their business is on the move. But wherever they are, they use their wealth, They use their vocation as a means of ministry, as a means of supporting the Apostle Paul, and as a means of being host and hospitality to churches and to ministry. Such lay people who are on mission and doing the work of the Lord are to be recognized by the church. Okay? And and we do that. I mean, right now, you can think of all sorts of lay people that are sitting right here in this room that we should recognize, do recognize, and probably don't recognize enough for being on mission, amen, in the work of the Lord. They are always abounding. 
But it's something that we can all do. So all vocations can work for the Lord. The second thing I want you to see here is some work for the Lord is vocational. Some work for the Lord is vocational. That's why up in verse 10 and 11, Timothy and Paul, their vocation, even though occasionally Paul would make tents, his full-time vocation and calling was to be an apostle, and Timothy as well. And then you drop down to verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come. He will come when he has opportunity. Now we know from 1 Corinthians 3 that Apollos is also a vocational pastor or a vocational missionary or a vocational teacher. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, we see that Paul is the planter of the gospel and Apollos is the water of the gospel. Okay, so what's that mean? What do planters do? They plant the seed and they get things started. What do waterers do? They water when the seed has grown and they encourage its growth. And so what you see is Paul would move around and start churches and Apollos would come in behind him and he would be a teacher and equipper and he would water the life that Paul had planted and he would disciple and equip. And so we see a couple of things here. We see that we have lay people who are businessmen who have the, what we would call full-time jobs and, uh, and yet they're on mission. We have men who are supported by churches and supported by uh, lay people in their giving, and they're on mission. But even those guys that are on mission as a vocation, they have different gifting. They have different callings. But they're all on mission, and they're all abounding in the work of the Lord. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, when he talks about Apollos and Paul, he says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And that word fellow workers is our same word again. Now, here's the bottom line. No matter where, you, where we get our paycheck from, we're all to be on mission by laboring in the work of the Lord. Amen? Doesn't matter where you get your paycheck from whether it comes from a church, whether it comes from IBM, whether it comes from wherever, we all are to be on mission. Now, let me break down what it means, what these words mean, and what it means to be on mission. First of all, on mission with the Lord. What's, what, what do you mean by that? Let's, let's, let's define that, and here it is. Devoting yourself. Devoting yourself to serving God's people by furthering the gospel to fulfill the great mission. Great Commission. How do I know I'm on mission? Have you devoted yourself to serve God's people through the local church in order to further the gospel, in order to fulfill God, the Great Commission? In other words, one of the ways to be on mission is to take the Mortons and pray for them every day this week. That's being on mission. You're furthering the gospel in China, and you are... Uh, helping to fulfill the Great Commission through your giving and through your praying. Now, Paul and Timothy and Apollos are on mission, and the church of, at Corinth is to send them on their way. We're going to see several times, both in terms of Paul and in Timothy. Well, you can see it. Look at verse 6. Paul says in verse 6, Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. In other words, church, support me as a missionary. 
And then he goes up and he says the same thing about Timothy. He says about Timothy in verse 11, Let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace. So what I just want you to see is he's writing from Ephesus, he's writing to Corinth, and he says in verses 5 and 6 that he's going to go through Macedonia. Okay, you're like, okay, I'm not going to put a map up here. I'm not going to show you where that is. I just want you to understand he's thinking geography. He's thinking people groups. He's thinking of spreading the gospel. He's asking local churches to support in that. That's what it means to be on mission, all right? So you're on mission when you and I devote ourselves through our church to get that job done. And so that's what being on mission. Whether you're vocational or you're a pastor that's bivocational, or you're lay people, we are all to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, on mission with God, in evangelizing the lost, discipling the saved, right here in Kansas City and around the world. And people who abound in the work of the Lord, instead of stagnating, are marked by staying on mission, regardless of where you get your paycheck. Okay? Now, that's being on mission. What's the key? What's this work of the Lord? The work of the Lord means being on mission is hard work. Okay, work means, in the Greek, are you ready, Jordan? Take notes, you're a seminary student now. Work means work in Greek, okay? It's called the work of the Lord. This is why I say to Gwen, I say, when she sub, substitute teaches, I have the gift of mercy and encouragement, Dana knows. And so when she comes home from subbing, I said, how was work? Oh, man, it was bad. It was hard. It was, you know, I said, well, that's why it's called work. You know, if it was easy, it'd be called what, Gwen? It'd be called vacation, you know. So this is called the work of the Lord. It doesn't call the, it's not called the vacation of the Lord. And, you know, and sometimes we get that idea because we all get excited about God. We get excited about the gospel. We hear a lesson like this and like the Spirit's going to motivate you to get involved in the work of the Lord. And while we're saying the work of the Lord, you think it's going to be the vacation of the Lord. It's going to be fun. It's going to be energizing. It's going to be rewarding because they all say that. And it is at times fun. It is at times energizing. It is rewarding. Your labor in the Lord is not in what? It's not in vain. But he doesn't say anywhere in there that it's the work of the Lord. And this word means work. Ministry is work. It always has been and always will be until the Lord comes. The work of the Lord is not always fun, but it's never in vain. People who abound in the work of the Lord, instead of stagnating, are marked by being hard workers in ministry. Lazy people don't abound in the work of the Lord. Lazy people often don't get involved in the work of the Lord, and if they do, they don't stay on mission, because it's work. But here's another word. It's not just work, it's very hard work. Laboring in the Lord is a different word, and it, being on mission is hard work. Staying on mission is very hard work. It's one thing to work. It's one thing to start deputation. Am I right, Mr. Nisley? It's another thing to stay on deputation. It's one thing to start your first term as a missionary. It's another thing to go back your second term. 
thanking God that this couple is going to go back. Many missionaries quit, and when they quit, they quit after their first term. Why? Because being on mission is hard is work, but staying on mission is very hard work. And this word means it's ex- working to the point of exhaustion. Okay, we who went to Barbuda had an experience of that, but I didn't need to go up to Barbuda and work in sand. I know what it is. There's a different kind of work. It's the work that I've done this week of preparing two messages, digging into the Word of God, allowing God to work me over, asking God to help me to communicate in a way that will connect with a variety of people in a variety of places. That's exhausting. Now, I'm not doing that to get sympathy. I'm just saying the work of the Lord, whether it's behind a desk, whether it's studying, whether it's counseling, whether it's working in a workplace and trying to witness, it is laborious. It is burdensome. I've used the illustration of women in labor. It ain't fun. So I've been told. But it's rewarding. And when the Lord blesses, it's not in vain. But it's painful, it's exhausting, it's burnt. Listen, if you're only going to serve when it's easy, you're not going to abound in the work of the Lord. Because it's hard work. Being on mission and serving ministry is not only work, but it's very hard work. Mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually exhausting. Uh, exhausting. The work of the Lord is sometimes burdensome, but it's never in vain. People who abound in the work of the Lord, instead of of stagnating, are marked by laboring in the ministry to the point of exhaustion. And even when it's burdensome, and even when it's extremely difficult, guess what they do? They stay on mission. They stay on mission. And let me say this. Such work is never done in isolation. I I, I like what it says down in verse... um, uh, where is it? Oh, verse uh, 16. It says, regarding Stephanus, it says, that you also may be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work. Helps in the work is one word. It's one word in the original, and it means to work together. And it's the same word that I just read in 1 Corinthians 15, where Apollos and Paul are fellow workers. It means to work together. Listen, you'll never stay on mission working in isolation from other people or trying to serve apart from a local church. And the good news is, as we move down through this verse, and you can look at Romans 16, which is very similar to 1 Corinthians 16, uh, singles can abound in the work of the Lord and be on mission. Married couples can be on mission. Married with kids can be on mission. Business women, businessmen, uh, we can all be on mission. Young, old, it can, and, and here's what we're going to see in the weeks to come. Being on mission and doing this work and laboring can be as simple as refreshing someone's spirit with an encouraging word and presence. That's what Paul says about these guys. He says, look, I rejoice, in verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what is lacking in your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. It can be as simple as an encouraging word and presence. That's why you need to show up every Sunday. Because just your presence is encouraging. 
And then an encouraging word can even be more refreshing, or it can be opening your home, which is a little more draining, right? Hosts of small groups, a little more draining, a little more exhausting, but that too is being on it. So you see, it, it's, so the first mark of those who are abounding and not stagnating is they're always on mission in the work of the Lord, even though it can be hard, difficult, and even dangerous. Now, the second mark that connects 1558 with chapter 16 is this. It's the mark of staying motivated in the work of the Lord. Now, I hope I painted the first one well enough that you're like, wow, that's kind of grim, you know, kind of exhausting, burdensome. So how do I stay on mission? you got to stay motivated in the work of the Lord. And those that abound in the work of the Lord, they stay motivated in the work of the Lord. Where's that motivation come from? It comes from the beginning of verse 50, uh, 1558, and we didn't really cover this last week. And it's this, Therefore, my beloved brethren... See, those are words we rush over when we read this verse. And when we teach, we often rush over those words, but I'm telling you, there is a boatload of motivation in those, verse, in those words. Paul chose words on purpose. God inspired those words. Why? Because my beloved brethren is the heart of motivation for ministry. Let me break that down and show you why that is. Uh, You will never abound in the work of the Lord unless you are motivated by unconditional love from the Lord. Motivation for ministry is a four-letter word. L. O-V-E. And it's not by accident that 1 Corinthians 13 has the love chapter in it. Why? Because he's trying to get them to see, as you will see in a few minutes upstairs, that 1 Corinthians 13 and love is the key to motivation and abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, let's break this down. Beloved. He calls them beloved. One who is Loved. That's what beloved means. One who is greatly loved. And what this word, the motivation in this word is this. As you trace this word throughout Scripture, it's in the Old and the New Testament. It speaks first and foremost to God's unconditional love for His elect people. When you see beloved in your Bibles, some of some newer translations translated as, as dear friends. Horrible translation. Horrible. This is not dear friends. This is people that are beloved. You are unconditionally loved by a sovereign God before the foundation of the world. He chose to love you unconditionally. That's motivating. Amen? He knew all about you, and yet He loved you. Even before you could do anything for Him and were even created, He chose to love you. That's what beloved means. And in fact, David, God's elect king in the Old Testament, he was called God's beloved. And David sure wasn't worthy of it, was he? An adulterer, a murderer, okay? And yet he was God's beloved. And God used him in ministry. So, what beloved... Think uh, 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 reminds us of is God chose us unconditionally before the foundation of the world. He deter- determined to adopt us into His family while we were still His enemies. The only reason we're brethren is because He chose us in His beloved. You don't get into the family 
unless God unconditionally loves you in Christ. He predestined us in love to be His holy people. We should be motivated to always abound in the work of the Lord because God has unconditionally loved us in Christ before we were even born. But, It isn't all about God loving us unconditionally. He says, my beloved. Who's the my refer to? Who's the my? My beloved. Who's talking? Who's writing? Paul. So it's not beloved speaks of God's love, but he says, you're also my beloved. So not only does God love you unconditionally, but guess what, Corinthians? I love you unconditionally. Now, We're jumping into the end of this book. If you read this whole letter in one sitting, you would be shocked that he ends this letter saying, My beloved. These guys are rascals. they, They have criticized Paul. They have put down Paul. They have exalted Apollos over Paul. They have... Paul won them to Christ. Paul planted his church. He risked his life. And they're criticizing him. Sounds like ministry to me. Sounds like being a parent to me. Sounds like being at work to me, right? Life's like this. But Paul's able to say, my beloved, listen, if you're only going to stay in ministry, if if you're only going to work in ministry as long as people like you, as long as people respond to you, as long as people affirm you, you're not going to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. The bottom line is, We're messed up people. Ministry is very human, which means it's very sinful. And you have to deal with what I'm going to call upstairs sandpaper people. People that rub you the wrong way. And Paul said, you know what? God loves me unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. The only thing I can do is love you unconditionally too. Amen? And listen, when you're in the nursery, when you're in Awana... When you're going to be helping with this child care for three days, you're going to need to remember, i got to love even the unlovely and the stinky and the undeserving. And guess what? They were supposed to do the same thing. Look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. That's the motivation for ministry. Then he says, my beloved brethren. He says, my beloved brethren. And that reminds us that the kind of love we're talking about is not some divine, you know, predestination that is abstract. It's personal and it's family love. It's a family love. Because basically that's what family love is, right? You know, when you have kids, you get the luck of the draw unless you adopt. And even though my parents saw my glowing face and chose me in the adoption process, they still didn't know what was in that package. Right? Are we we connecting over here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, now listen. And it becomes what? An unconditional kind of love. You're like, you know what? No matter what I get, I'm loving it. Because it's mine. Right? And if we truly love with God's love, no matter what our kids do, we will love them unconditionally. We will set boundaries. We will discipline. We will have tough love, but we will have love. And we will say... I love you. This is my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We should want others to join the family. That's why we get in ministry. We want others to join God's family and be born again and be adopted by His unconditional love in Christ. But we also want to interact as a family as we minister. And sometimes we just got to remember, you know what? We're going to spend eternity together. I guess we ought to get along down here. Right? You know, this idea of running from one ministry to another or one church to another to avoid people is ridiculous if we're all born again because we're going to be together in heaven. Yeah, but heaven's a big place and I can avoid them there too. Really? Really? You really think you're going to go to the Lord and say, you know what? I, I'm surprised you let this one in because I have a hard time with them. Could you put me somewhere else? And the Lord's going to say, no, let's come a little closer. Let's talk about this. Now, let me give you an illustration. I kind of wrote this out because it can be a little... But it's really cool. There's so much of this. The Bible is a living, active story of people like you and I. And so, I want to show you how this kind of brotherly love motivated both Paul and Apollos in their work for the Lord. Uh, The Corinthians had pitted Paul and Apollos against each other by favoring one over the other. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 3. Some said, I am of Paul. He's aggressive. He's a pioneer. He gets after it. He's missions. And then others said, I'm of Apollos. He's an awesome Bible teacher. He's deep in the Word. He explains truth. And he builds up the church. And they were comparing and competing and causing division in the church. But Paul refused to compete or compare himself with Apollos. And when they wanted Apollos to come, perhaps instead of Paul, hey, glad you're offering to come, Paul. But is Apollos available? Because really, he's more powerful than you. He's more eloquent in the scriptures. We, we like his ministry better. You know what Paul did out of love? Well, first of all, you know what I would do not out of love? I'd say, sure, and then I'd kind of forget to mention that to Apollos, right? Or I'd tell him, hey, you're carnal, you're divisive, you just want him for the wrong reasons, I'm not taking rebuke him. But you know what Paul does out of brotherly love? He says, according to verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, and he uses brother again, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. In other words, I love you guys enough to encourage someone else who you may prefer over me because it's not about me, it's about you, and it's about what God... Isn't that cool? But it's not just Paul who was loving, it was Apollos too because look at Apollos' response. But Apollos refused to compete or compare himself with Paul and when they wanted him to come, perhaps instead of Paul, out of love, Apollos refused to be manipulated by the Corinthians or cause any division among the brethren. Look at his response. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, that's a strong statement, and we don't know. I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but that is a strong statement, and I think the strength of the statement is this. I think Apollos is saying, he's not upset that Paul's trying to urge him, Paul, you're controlling me. I will do things on my own. No, Paul's saying, look, man, out of love, they want you more than me. And Apollos says, out of love for them and out of love for God, I will not be manipulated or forced to do something to cause division between the leaders in the church and between you and I. I will come in God's time, not the Corinthian time. I'm just telling you 
That's brotherly love. That's being motivated in the work of the Lord. Both men always abounded in the work of the Lord because they were motivated by God's kind of love. In fact, upstairs we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the attributes of love is it, 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 is, not, um, it is not rude and it does not insist on its own way. And I think what they're doing here is they're demonstrating love and saying, look, it's not about what I want. It's not about me being liked. It's not about me being better than someone. It's not about me competing. And listen, you haven't been in church ministry as a layperson if you think that doesn't happen. Right? It happens on praise teams. It happens in children's ministry. It happens in the nursery because we're human. And we need God's kind of love to motivate us. So here's what I want you to see. Staying motivated by the love of the Lord is a matter of life and death. Staying motivated by the love of the Lord is a matter of life and death. Eternal life and death. Now, I could preach a whole message on this verse, but I want you to see this. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 21 through 24. Here's how Paul ends this letter, and he ends it talking about love. Notice what he says. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. I love you enough that I want you to know I'm writing this part of the letter in my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Did you see that? That, I could preach a whole, and I probably should someday, a whole message on, listen, biblical, when I say stay motivated in love, that doesn't mean being a wimp. Okay, that doesn't mean denying the truth. That doesn't mean not sharing truth. That doesn't mean not standing up. He says, this, this loving guy says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord... Go to hell. That's the literal translation. Go to hell. Because here's the thing. That's how serious love is. Loving the Lord is true believers love the Lord. And when we don't love the Lord, we're just showing that we are cursed and we are separated from God and we don't know Him. But then he says, our Lord, come. Because those who really love the Lord say, Lord, come. Come resurrect us. Come rapture us. Remember, they were denying those truths. And then he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Jesus. Amen. Now, four, four principles out of those verses that are powerful. And I'm just going to give them to you. The first thing he tells them is love the Lord. Love the Lord. To do otherwise shows yourself to be unsaved and deserving of hell. And that's not because God's needy up there in heaven saying, Man, I really need, Come on, bring it. Bring it. Oh, you're not going to bring it? Go to hell. That's not God. God is awesome and complete without our love or with our love. What he's saying is to not love God, to love God is our responsibility because he is worthy. And when we don't fulfill that responsibility, that's sin. That's sin. It's sin not to love God who is worthy of our love. To not love Him is to rob Him of His glory that only He deserves. So love the Lord. Number two, long for the Lord. Long, if you really love someone, you want to spend time with them, and you can't wait to see Him face to face. That's why He says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because you know what? I love you, and I can't wait to be in your presence. Got it? These are the motivations for ministry. Number three, look to the Lord. In verse 23, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. I'm not going to hammer this because upstairs we're going to hammer it. You can't love God 
without God's grace. Loving God is impossible. Listen, loving God like Apollos, like, like Paul, like Jesus, like 1 Corinthians says to do, is impossible. So you've got to look to the Lord to love the Lord. It's beautiful. It goes together. The more you look to Him, the more you love Him. The more you love Him, the more you long for Him. The more you long for Him, the more you look to Him. Number four, love like the Lord. Love like the Lord. Look how he ends. I love it. The last sentence in 1 Corinthians is this. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And again, if you read this whole letter, that is one radical Christ-like love for him to say that to those people. What was Paul's motivation in ministry? You see it right there. My love for you in Christ Jesus. I love like Christ loves me. I love like Christ loves you. And that's my motivation for ministry. You'll never abound in the work of the Lord until you know God loves you and He can love others through you, just like He loves you. Number three, the third mark is keeping the mandate for the work of the Lord. What is the mandate for the work of the Lord? It's real simple. Be steadfast and immovable. So, I'm to work in the Lord, I'm to labor in the Lord, but His mandate, His command, is you got to be steadfast and immovable. So let me break that down for you. Two ways to think about it. Be steadfast in your devotion. Be steadfast in your devotion to serving the Lord and His people. So here's what I think of. Think your sumo wrestlers for Jesus in ministry. What do sumo guys do? They go, Ugh, right? right? And they're steadfast, right? And then what's the goal in sumo wrestling? To push the guy out of the circle, right? To move him, right? And so like sumo wrestles, you got to be steadfast in your devotion, but you need to be immovable in your determination. Be immovable in your determination to let nothing and no one move you from serving the Lord and His people. And as I get older and as I stay longer in ministry, there's more and more reasons to be tempted to quit, to shift, to retire. To I can't retire, but that's but you can retire in your heart. And the mandate is be steadfast in your devotion. Be immovable in your determination. Here I stand, I can do no other. Now, where does this show up in this verse? Well, we're going to see that more of this as we look. But for Paul, it's in verses 8 and 9. Listen, look, see if you can find the steadfast determination or devotion and the immovable determination in verses 8 and 9. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Steadfast devotion. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Immovable determination. I'm going to stay here, and I'm not going to let opposition move me. Isn't that cool? It's right there. It's right there for us to see. You know, the stats say that the average pastor leaves a church in defeat due to only five to seven people. But when you're in ministry, those five to seven people, you know what the pastor's thinking? The whole church is against me. 
They're all against me because it feels that way. But on average, it's five to seven people. That's not everyone. That's a small group. Remain steadfast. Remain immovable. Don't let opposition rob you of the opportunities to serve the Lord. Because every opportunity is going to bring opposition, and every reward requires risk. So, Paul stuck it out. Well, what about lay people? Do they do that too? Well, look at verses 15 and 16. Stephanus is the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, remember first fruits from chapter 15? He's the first of the converts of many more to come. And he's the first of more like him. And he is dedicated to the Lord. What that tells me is he started out, well, it says right there even that he did this. They devoted themselves for ministry. But this first fruit from years ago is still serving the Lord. Why? Because he's steadfast and movable. And do you think we should be this way too? Look at verse 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You know what he's saying there? Be steadfast and immovable. That's the mandate. Finally, the mark of modeling the manner of the work of the Lord. How do we do this? How do we do all this? What marks people? And it's always abounding. And what's that mean? And we're going to see in the weeks to come. It means three things. Never settling. Never settling. When you're abounding, you're not settling. You're not just going through the motions. Never stagnating. Never stagnating. By no longer growing in ministry, being stretched in ministry. Every uh, Sunday, men, you're invited to pray with Pastor Bruce before the service. I prayed with his dad, and our former pastor prays with him every Sunday, as well as anybody else that wants to come. And I sat and we talked with Tyrone, a man in his 70s, who's still abounding. Still abounding, still growing. And guess what he's teaching today? He's teaching his class to continue to grow and abound. That's his topic today. Never stagnating. Number three, number three, never stopping. Never stopping until the day we die and the Lord returns. We're going to learn how to abound. We're not going over the evaluation. That's for you to go over before the Lord. So take this evaluation, go before the Lord, and get ready for the next two weeks. Amen? Here's your application. Take this evaluation and prayerfully go before the Lord. You can take one a day. It'll take you four days. And you say, Lord, where am I? Okay? Where am I? Take a hard look. And, uh, and I hope it will be encouraging to you. Now, what we're going to do for the next two weeks is we're going to look at ten areas from chapter 16 where we can be abounding, not only like the Corinthians, but where we can abound right here at Glenwood. Amen? All right. Good stuff. Man, I don't know, but I'm excited. Are you excited? Okay, so, somewhat. Let's pray. Father, help us be more excited about your work. Uh, Lord, it's long weeks. Today's the first day of the week, though, and it's Resurrection Sunday. And we can abound because your grace is abundant and you've loved us unconditionally. I pray that each of us would take seriously these marks, measure our lives this week, and look to you, because you're the one that makes us qualified for ministry, and you're the one that enables us to abound in ministry. But Lord, we need to be abounding, because the days are darker, your coming is nearer, and when you come, the days of ministry, of reaching the lost, are over. 
Give us a burden. Break our hearts. May we always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. In Jesus' name, His precious name, amen.